I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota is part of the self-described squad, the quartet of progressive congresswomen elected to the House in 2018 who've become a lightning rod within the Democratic caucus and a target of President Trump. In this special Cape Up Live interview recorded on November 16th, Congresswoman Omar talks about the impact of Trump's attacks on her and her children, her priorities for the next Congress, and we get into the widely reported rift between moderate and progressive Democrats, hear why Omar says the disagreements within the caucus aren't as big as we think they are right now. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post, and welcome to Washington Post Live. Uh, it is also a live recording of my Post Opinions podcast, Cape Up. My guest today was just reelected to her second term in the U.S. House of Representatives. She is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota's 5th Congressional District. Congresswoman, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's so great to be here with you, Jonathan. So last we talked, which was yesterday uh, on MSNBC, I asked you for your reaction to um, being able to say the words president-elect Biden. And your response to me was really interesting. You said, and, and correct me, and I would love for you to, to um, expand on this. You said that it, it would be, it, it, it'll be great for you to not have to explain to your daughter why the, pres the president of the United States was saying mean things about you. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if you remember this, Jonathan, but um, the president, when he was running for president, came to Minnesota two days before the 2016 elections and basically went on attack uh, against Somali immigrants, Somali refugees, uh, and for me and the community that I represent and for my children, it's been a four-year assault on everything that we believe in and everything that we stand for, down to our basic identity uh, as American refugees in this country. And so, you know, I've had many long days, many nights having to explain um, to my youngest child who is now eight. Um, my two older ones, uh, you know, sort of absorb and can contextualize what what is taking place in the political discourse in this country. But for her, it's been really challenging for um, this to actually happen. You know, I think for a lot of our kids, they hear about a president and they hear about uh, someone they're supposed to look up to, see as a leader, um, and there there's a lot of respect for the presidency that, that we try to instill in them, uh, and to have someone who has denigrated that uh, as a president in her very formative years has been really challenging. I mean, it's one thing to be um, to have someone attack your community writ large. It's another thing when that someone is the president of the United States and he is directly attacking you by name, personally. How has, how has that felt? Oh, um, I mean, on, on a personal level, you know, I, I have gotten accustomed to standing up to, to bullies 
um, in, in my life. And so on a personal level, it hasn't really impacted me besides having, you know, my, my children uh, be exposed to it. And, um, and you know, for the, for the last two months of, of this election cycle, waking up every single morning to text messages from my siblings asking if I was safe because he chose to speak about me at every single rally. It didn't really matter where he was, uh, right. sometimes multiple times in a day um, as he had held his Klan rallies throughout the country. And, um, and you know, and, and, I, and I thought a lot about in the, in the last two years, what that attack on me has meant for the people who see themselves in me, um, whether it is you know Muslims, whether it is black women, whether it is immigrants, refugees, um, people who are aspiring to be leaders in in our country, uh, many firsts uh, who want to live in an inclusive society and want to be part of creating progress for our country. Uh, and it's it's really um, something to to analyze and to understand and to to reckon with. Um, because as I as I said, you know, when I first came to the United States in middle school, I remember getting uh, a letter of recognition from then President Clinton, and I remember you know reading um, this this letter and. You know, I, I wrote about it in my book. My father um, sort of was really proud of, of this letter. At the time, I didn't really care much about, um, you know, who was president or <laughs> politics. Um, but to my father, it was an, an acceptance of our existence in this country. It was sort of, you know, another welcoming letter because you get a welcoming letter when you arrive here as a refugee. Uh, and, you know, that that is what a president is supposed to be a representative of. They are a leader of the nation. Uh, they are supposed to make everybody feel as if they are their president. And to have now had four years of um, a, a president who has occupied the White House, who has not seen himself as a leader of all of the people in this country, who has not extended a welcoming hand to every single person um, is, you know, really sad and, and, and depressing and disheartening. Um, and the day that it was announced that he lost his re-election, um, I, I, I tweeted to, to my now deceased father who passed away because of COVID complications uh, that the president did not really even acknowledge um, that, you know, that we did it, uh, that he will no longer be president of the United States and the country that he loved um, will hopefully come back uh, to being a beacon of hope uh, and an inclusive country that understands that um, there is strength in our diversity and, um, and that there are better days ahead of us. Well, Congresswoman, my condolences on the on the loss of your the passing of your of your father. You know, the attacks from the president 
uh, on you directly and personally and specifically also had to do with his reelection strategy, not only just ginning up the base around the country, but part of his plan to try to win Minnesota, which he very narrowly lost in 2016, it didn't work. Um, one could say that it didn't work because Minnesota is a, you know, traditionally a, a democratic state. But do you think that the attacks on you backfired? It did. And it not just attacks on me. I mean, attacks on uh, every single um, person in, in this country backfired. Uh, black women who have been um, subject to his vitriol uh, have shown up in mass numbers um, to repute his presidency and to uh, change course in this country. Um, young people have shown up in mass numbers uh, to say we want a future that is brighter than the darkness that you have brought. Uh, immigrants, um, people who just got their citizenship uh, showed up and said, you know, this is going to be an inclusive country um, and a place for all of us. And we're going to be part of the process of creating that. Uh, and Minnesotans, by and large, um, showed up in numbers that they have not for presidency in a long time uh, to say you are not going to use our state um, to spread your message of hate and division in this country. We are not only going to um, not elect you, but we are going to show the country what it means to stand up to a bully like you. So, Congresswoman, so President Trump uh, lost Minnesota, but when it comes to the House of Representatives, Republicans, well, Democrats didn't win the seats that they thought they were going to win. And in fact, Republicans ended up gaining seats. Um, and still, we'll find out uh, next month whether Republicans retain control of the Senate. But why do you think that is, that even though President-elect Joe Biden won the popular vote, won more than, at last count, more than 5 million votes than, than President Trump, why don't you think President-elect Biden and the Democrats had coattails to go from you know, winning the White House to expanding the Democratic majority in the House? I mean, elections are nuanced. You know, um, in, in Minnesota, we have a tradition of people splitting their uh, ballots. Um, and and we, we've seen that happen, not just in Minnesota, but throughout the country. Um, and and I also think, you know, in, in many cases, there was so much focus, especially for me. I mean, I didn't I didn't even talk to a single person. Um, doing my general election about voting for me. You know, I was so much focused in defeating Trump uh, and making sure Biden won. We made, you know, uh, 1.4 uh, million attempts in reaching um, our constituents. Uh, and that's why we ended up having one of the highest turnouts in our uh, district. And, and I think for, for a lot of my colleagues who've lost, they've expressed how you know there was a lot of concentration whether it was you know, the the volunteers um the the nation's attention was on uh sending trump packing uh and for 
you know, a lot of us, um, you, that that win in itself um, was the victory that we were after. Um, I will say campaigning during a pandemic um, really wasn't something that a lot of people were prepared for. I had to fight um, to uh, establish a ground game, hire a canvassing team and go out and door knocking in Minnesota. I know a lot of my colleagues um, did not do that. Uh, and so there are, are a lot of challenges that happen when you are not having that one-on-one face-to-face conversation with constituents, when Republicans continue to um, expand their ground game, uh, Democrats did not. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, that came up, I mean, one, there's the infamous you know, caucus phone call after the election where apparently got very heated. But one of the things that um, your your congressional colleague, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, said um, in the New York Times and other places that, you know, hammering home the fact that, you know, Democrats are way behind when it comes to to digital campaigns and having an online presence. And I'm just wondering, one, your take on that, and two, sort of the rejoinder that came from Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan in a Politico profile that I read, where um, she says, I'm gonna read you this quote, I think that she's better informed speaking about her own district. Maybe more than 9% of her district is on Twitter, but that's about how much of mine is on Twitter. And then she goes on to say that she had a, a robust digital program. She said, but I'd like to see her gas pump video screen ads. Did she have those? Those were a big part of what we invested in because my voters, especially during COVID, were still going to get gas. I'm bringing all of this up because I'm wondering this rift that appears to be there or that is there between the progressive wing of which you are strongly identified and the so-called moderate ring wing of the party are in conflict, are at loggerheads. Are we making too much of this or is the Democratic caucus really in danger of, you know, leave aside the Senate, possibly in 2022, losing the majority in the House? I mean, so, you know, I think it's important for people to have fluency, right, in the people that they seek to represent, whether it is their challenges or the best ways to engage with them. You know, some people will say um, focus on uh, constituent services um, is is important, which we all understand how valuable that is um, to to serving your constituents. Um, But when you're running for for re-election, um, or running for the first time, utilizing every mode of communication uh, is essential to winning your um, your election. And you know the thing that Alexandria um, Ocasio Cortez, Alex, myself, and and Rashida understood uh, while we ran our our primaries because we were um, all challenged um, in in the primary is that during COVID, you have to utilize digital strategy, an aggressive digital strategy in order to get your message out to your constituents. Uh, And that needs to also be 
you know, part of the the work that you do going forward um, while you serve as well. Uh, and I think, you know, what Slotkin is saying is something that we've been saying, right? We, we understand that the Democratic caucus is um, a, a big tent. We understand that there is differences um, in the different constituents that we serve. Um, our party is unique in, in that regard. Uh, we are not monolithic in, um, in the constituents that we have uh, and the demographics of those constituents. Uh, but we are also a party that says we are the party of the people. And so prioritizing the needs of people um, is, is something that we need to be unified in, whether it is talking about uh, how to address the social and economic neglect that people have dealt with for decades, um, or whether it is uh, figuring out how to have a cohesive message um, that, that speaks to who we are as, as a caucus. Uh, what we are um, asking our colleagues to do is to continue to have that conversation because when we are not having conversations with the people and we are having conversations about our divisions, the Republicans win. And I was going to ask, you know, I'm wondering, is, is it the message, um, the mode of the message that is the problem for, for the Democrats or the Democratic Party, or is it the message itself? Do you think that the reason why Democrats did not um, gain the seats that it wanted to and, and some Democratic members of Congress uh, were not reelected was because their constituents, the voters, didn't like the message, didn't like the policies that they were running on? Yes, I mean, the responsibility is on the candidate themselves to figure out what messages work as they communicate with the people they are seeking to represent. Um, you know, obviously we have uh, a message as, as Democrats about what it means to address the needs of, of the American people, um, but tailoring that message to the constituents that you serve uh, in the way that it is best suitable is something that you only understand as a candidate um, who's running in, in that district. Uh, and when you fall short of that, 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 that falls on you. It doesn't fall on you know, the candidate that's running across the country uh, for, for a seat um, and, and messaging to a different constituency than the one that you serve. Uh, and so, you know, our challenge is figuring out how do we run a 21st century campaign? Um, and that is not only about message, it's about also figuring out, right? Like, how are you going to be in front of people getting your message to them, whether it is door knocking using, you know, digital ads um, or, or being on TV, different things work. I've never imagined that I would run TV ads, but in my primary race, I had to run TV ads. Uh, and that's about adapting. That's about understanding what is it going to take for you to win. Um, and for someone who had $17 million spent against them, um, you know, by Democrats and Republicans to unseat me, uh, I'm here because I figured out how to have um, proper ways in, in engaging my constituents so that I can win both of my elections, the primary and the general.
Are there areas, um, uh, and I'm sorry to keep harping on the, the, the rift between the progressive wing and the moderate wing, but well, welcome to Washington. Are there areas? Jonathan, that, that this riff is, is basically from, you know, the media and the pundits um, and, and the Republicans. I think, you know, internally, um, you know, as a big family, we might have our, our debates and, and discussions, but, you know, the rift isn't as, as strong as it's being made out to be. Um, and, and, I, and I take your point because as, as, I, as I was listening, as you talked about the nuance um, that candidates, depending on their district, need to need to uh, need to employ while running for re-election. That sounded imminently reasonable, and I'm sitting sitting here trying to understand. Well, wait. Well, what is, am I making a thing of the rift? So let's just leave. Let's just leave that aside. When I mean, I, I would to, say this as a last point to sure. to that rift. You know, I think. Oftentimes when people lose or feel challenged, right? I, I remember getting a primary challenger. I could blame every single person on the Democratic side who has um, attacked me since getting to Congress and say, this is why I have a Democratic primary challenger. I could blame, you know, the, 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 the colleagues whose spouses donated to my primary opponent. I could blame the governor, the Democratic governors who donated to my primary opponent. Or I could say, this is a challenge and I need to overcome because that blame game doesn't serve me. It's not good for my psyche. I'm better at thinking about how to provide a positive message to my constituents so that I can bring them back and I can win this election. Uh, and, you know, I think about the different ads that I've seen for um, either, you know, Slotkin or uh, Abigail Spineberger or um, even, you know, Connor Lamb. And I think these ads had a lot to do about your history prior to coming to Congress. They had a lot to do with the fact that you chose to go take pictures um, with people who had defund the police signs. They had a lot to do with the way in which you've conducted yourself and the shortcomings that you have. And so you can, right, continue to blame people across the country um, for serving their constituents, or you can say, I've overcome all of these challenges and I won my election. Now let's figure out how everybody can overcome their challenges and win their elections, because that's a more hopeful place to work from. And as the optimist in the room, I'm always looking at, you know, how do we positively move forward uh, instead of looking back and thinking about, you know, what um, we, we can, try to get stuck on and, and not allow for ourselves to, to be in positions to better serve our constituents. So then, since you invoked her name, Congresswoman Spamberger, you know, as reported on the call, um, was, was angry, um, very angry about the impact of, quote, defund the police, but also the, the use of the word socialism uh, within the party. Does she not have a point? On that, the, the, the negative impacts that those two things had on democratic races around the country. I have not seen a single analysis to point to um, a, a research data point that that is actually something that had impact. Um, if you look at the ads that were run against her, it had to do with 
you know, a school she was teaching in Saudi Arabia that's supposed to be like a terror hotspot or something like that. Um, you look at ads across the country where, you know, they 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 were using um, their their votes uh, with with Pelosi against them. Um, you think about the two Senate races right now in Georgia. It's about Schumer and and something that he said about us. Um, changing our country and changing the world. I mean, there are so many um, lies and smears that the Republicans engage in uh, that have had impact on on races. Uh, and you know, to to blame a, a movement that has shown up for us in the most aggressive way to deliver a decisive victory um, for for President. President-elect Biden um, is is really shameful and and something that um, I, I can't even believe my Democratic colleagues are doing. Uh, well, let's talk about your district. What are, what are your priorities for your constituents in Minnesota's fifth district in your next term? Um, our our priorities are one trying to to figure out how do we help uh, President Biden, um, the Biden and Harris uh, administration to to curb the spread of virus. Minnesota is um, experiencing a surge uh, and and is currently dealing um, with you know the the impact of of this pandemic in in a serious personal uh, way. Um, figuring out how do we bring our country back from the brick of a uh, financial uh, crisis, um, dealing with the the looming eviction crisis that, that we have and the housing crisis that preceded this pandemic, um, canceling student debt, uh, you know, um, dealing with the climate crisis that we have uh, and figuring out, you know, as someone who recognizes healthcare as a human right, how do we make sure every American uh, has access to healthcare? Um, and Kimberly, this, this conversation is so great and we are actually running out of time. And I have two, two um, questions I need to ask you before we go. You're on the, the Foreign Affairs Committee and I'm wondering how do you balance the desire to talk about Israel and Palestine and open debate in this country about our support for Israel with the very real sensitivities of Jewish people in mind? I mean, as we deal with um, the, the, the country Israel um, and, you know, it's, it's continued um, place in, uh, in, in the Middle East and, and impact on, on our foreign policy, um, it, it, it needs to be a conversation that we have, uh, you know, on on a on a policy level, um, in in trying to really adjust how we we talk about uh, a conflict that that doesn't really include um, two parties that are operating on an equal footing. Um, we don't have a full recognition um, for for statehood for Palestinians. Uh, what does it mean for us to advocate for human rights, to advocate for rights of people 
uh, and and how do we continue to have a conversation um, on on statehood for people who have uh, experienced injustice for so long? You know, um, Vice President-elect Harris uh, is you know she's broken through a ton of barriers, a ton of glass ceilings just by being elected vice president-elect of the United States. She's the first um, woman. She is the first person of color to be vice president. She's the first black woman for a South Asian for a South Asian woman. And I'm just wondering if you could take a step back and just talk about what it means to have uh, the vice pre incoming vice president of the United States be a person of color, be someone who you can look at and see your reflection. Yeah, I mean, she's also the first um, daughter of immigrants to uh, to ascend to the vice presidency. Um, you know, when we watched her come on stage, uh, my my daughter, who's eight, her first thoughts were, um, she looks like me, mama. Um, and, you know, there's this famous quote that my sister constantly repeats, you can't be what you can't see. Uh, and for so many of um, our daughters, they're going to get an opportunity to see themselves um, in, in, in that position and to know that there is no limitation um, on their ability to ascend to a powerful position like that um, is is something that that is beautiful. You know, I've always said representation matters in a representative democracy um, and the kind of representation that her visibility in itself um, provides is is something that we we can't really quantify. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the great state of Minnesota. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.